Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Boldashino, and this is episode 65 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today is actually nobody. That's right, I'm doing this solo today. It's a new year, and we at Tech Chat are slowly getting back into things, so happy new year to all. By February, we'll be back in the swing of things, alternating between the deeper sessions that our stats tell us you love with update sessions mixed in between. The next two shows to round out January will be update-based, and there's a few reasons here. Firstly, it's January, and we're still warming back up and stepping back into it, and those deeper shows, they take a bit of time. Secondly, I'm flying halfway around the world in the next two weeks, but most importantly, there's been over 150 updates that were missed since last November and overshadowed by the event that was re-event. So today in this episode of AWS Tech Chat, we're going to pause following our SageMaker special and come at you with a raft of short, sharp and important updates that have occurred in the last few months. And at the time of recording, that will be between November 2019 through to January 2020. And being Tech Chat, we'll cover these at the level you expect, but more importantly, ask the hard so what and why questions. There is literally over 100 updates and even culling regional-based rollouts. It was 76 items in the initial cull. There is so much to talk about, so best I get into these. I'm going to skip the news altogether today. No new AZs, no new edge locations, and we'll leave summit announcements for another day. I will say though, the calendar for our global summit series has now been published. The first kicks off in March, and we'll cover these in future episodes. One of the big changes that snuck in just before reInvent in late November that we've yet to cover is Lambda destinations. I'm not talking a destination that Lambda can invoke or be triggered from, but allowing Lambda to be used in an asynchronous manner. This is a new feature of Lambda that provides visibility into Lambda function invocation and route to execution results to AWS services, which simplifies event-driven applications by reducing the complexity and coding you need to do. Now, we often talk about sync versus async on TechChat, and there's a shift in software design to perform events asynchronously, be it for dealing with failure conditions, performance, and so on. With Lambda destinations, when a function is invoked asynchronously, Lambda sends the event to an internal queue. A separate process reads from that queue and executes your Lambda function. Something to note here is that we manage this queue. Lambda manages the function's asynchronous invocation queue and attempts to retry failed events automatically. If the function that you're trying to execute returns an error, Lambda will attempt to run it two more times with one minute wait between the first two attempts and two minutes between the second and third attempts. Function errors include errors returned by the function's code and errors returned by the function's runtime, such as a timeout. With destinations, you can route asynchronous function results, that is the output of your function, as an execution record to a destination resource without writing additional code. An execution record contains details about the request and response in JSON format, including the version, timestamp, request context, request payload, response context, and response payload. For each execution status, such as success or failure, you can choose one of four destinations. That can be another Lambda function, it can be SNS, SQS, or EventBridge. And you can define this on a per function basis, so it's pretty granular. Now, I'll put my hand up as being guilty of this, 
But a use case here and a win for customers is you no longer need to chain long-running Lambda functions together in a synchronous manner. So previously, you needed to complete the entire workflow within the Lambda's 15-minute function timeout, pay for that idle time, wait for a response. Destinations allows you to return a success response to the calling function and then handle the remaining chaining functions in an asynchronous manner. So that's a really big win here. So how do you do this, you may ask? I'll walk you through the console, but it goes without saying you can use a CLI, SAM, CloudFront, or a language-specific SDK for Lambda. On the Lambda console, open the functions page. You can choose an existing Lambda function or create a new one, either author from scratch or a blueprint. Go ahead, create your function as you'd normally do, and within the functions code pane, you need to paste a snippet of code to which you can find our documentation. Now this code is gonna generate the function execution result of either success or failure, depending on adjacent input. Then to configure destinations, within the designer pane, choose Add Destination. Select the source as a synchronous invocation, select the condition as either on failure or on success, depending on your use case. Enter in the Amazon resource name for the destination SQSQ, SNS topic, Lambda function, or event bridge event bus. Choose Save, and that's all you need to do. Now follow that same process again, either for success or failure, depending on what you picked. Now that was a pretty high level and there is minutia that you need to be aware of, so see our documentation for this. I will say we have destination specific JSON format. So for SNS SQS, the JSON object is passed as a message to the destination. For Lambda, the JSON is passed as the payload to the function. The destination function cannot be the same as a source function, so you know, creating an infinite loop here, and this will prevent a recursive function. For event bridge, the JSON is passed as the detail in the put events call. The source is lambda and the detail type is either lambda function invocation result success or lambda function invocation result failure. So to summarize, Destinations gives you more visibility and control of your function results. This helps you build better event-driven applications and helps reduce code. I'll also say if you aren't using lambda layers, you should also be doing that as well. There's no additional cost for enabling lambda destinations. However, calls made to destination target services may be charged. So let's pivot here and touch on some EC2 updates. I'm afraid I have no new instances to talk about, but as usual, there are a few things happening in the world of EC2, and being our most mature service, it's a pretty big world. First update is now longer format resource IDs are available in EC2. Now, when I saw this, I had to search my personal email here because in 2017, we announced in June of 2018, we would migrate to 17 character resource IDs in order to support the growth of EC2. Well, this is now changing once again, and like before, it's because of growth. I wanna call this out because if you're using automation like a regex expression, a glob pattern, etc., to match an EC2 resource ID, you may need to make change. So from now up until the end of April 2020, you can test your systems with the longer format and opt in when you're ready. But after April 2020, all new resources will be created with a longer ID by default. The new format is only going to apply to newly created resources. Your existing resources won't be affected. But we don't like surprises. Well, I don't. And hence, I strongly recommend testing your systems and opting into the longer format across all of your accounts before the end of April 2020. More information on this can be found in the EC2 Frequently Asked Questions. T3 instances, they've been out a while now, but as a refresher, they're a low-cost, burstable, general-purpose compute instance type that provides a baseline level of CPU performance with the ability to burst CPU usage at any time for as long as required. So T3 instances are designed for applications with you know, moderate CPU usage, and that may experience that temporary spike in usage. They're affordable, and whilst you won't necessarily use them in production, T3 instances 
are an option to run development and test environments. And the last part, development and test environments, is where I want to hone in. Elasticache, which we offer fully managed Redis and Memcached offerings, now offers the ability to leverage T3 instances. Same usual bucket credit policy applies. If what I just said makes no sense to you, pop into your favorite search engine, CPU credits and baseline performance, T3 EC2. So the gist is, credits are earned at a constant rate determined by the instance size, and then they're consumed for usage above zero. So a T3 standard cache node is gonna accumulate CPU credits when the workload is operating below a baseline threshold. Each earned CPU credit provides the cache node an opportunity to burst when the performance of a full CPU core is required until the credits are exhausted. Elasticache T3 standard cache nodes are suitable for entry-level, small, medium cache workloads that may experience that temporary spike in usage. If you're already using T2s and want to move to T3s to get a better price to performance ratio, you can scale up to this new cache node type from T2 cache nodes by modifying your existing Elasticache cluster. A documentation walks you through this, but the process is going to be different for Redis and Elasticache, and if you are or aren't using cluster mode. See the documentation, it is possible. Quickly staying with instance types, RDS has a few new instance types. You may or may not have noticed, but late November of 2019, there are new instances for MSSQL Server. The DBM5 and DBR5 instance classes are available in 8x and 16x larges. With support for these new instances, if you're using either an M4 10x large, an M4 16x large, an R4 8x large, or an R4 16x large, you now have an easy upgrade path to the latest generation of instances. We know these instance types perform better. R5s, as an example, deliver 5% additional memory per vCPU and up to 20% increased CPU performance over an R4 instance. And taking the instance price off the table, it provides more RAM and better performance. Looking through the lens of Microsoft SQL, it isn't exactly cheap. I have a lot of conversations with customers around Enterprise Edition and how much it costs per CPU core. So if you can get more RAM and more CPU, that's a win that potentially may allow you to reduce your licensing footprint. And to date, I haven't met one customer who doesn't want to reduce their licensing obligations. Okay, moving on from EC2 instance types, two really good updates on the ASG or auto scaling group front. So the first update I want to talk about is Amazon EC2 auto scaling lets you now securely recycle instances in an auto scaling group at a regular cadence. Now, there's a really good reason you want to do this, and that's compliance and preventing snowflakes. You know, those hand tweaked machines. The maximum instance lifecycle parameter helps you ensure that instances are recycled before reaching a specified lifetime, giving you an automated way to adhere to an organizational policy that you may have. Let's imagine you've got a policy to patch your machines once a month. Well, this feature can allow you to easily do this. Have your launch policy target a new AMI, because remember, we update our AMIs with patch versions of core operating systems. The good news here is you can either create a new ASG or update an existing one to include the maximum instance lifetime. The value in either the AWS CLI or in CloudFormation is max-instance-lifetime. It's a value you enter in seconds and can be between seven days and 365 days. If you need to clear a previously set value, you can reapply the ASG policy with a value of zero. Moving on, probably a thing more in the old pre-cloud world, but have you ever had to load balance a set of different servers with differing levels of performance? I know I have. Algorithms like round robin simply don't work. You end up with hot servers because they're slower than the others and it's a pain. 
least connections partially solves this. And if you aren't familiar with the values you can use for creating target groups, I suggest you take a look at our load balancer documentation. We've now added another means to load balance and that's called instance weighting. As I inferred, this feature is great if you're going to provision and scale across multiple instance types. Instance weights define the capacity units that each instance type would contribute to your application performance, providing greater flexibility for instance type selection that can be included in your ASG. With the advent of Spot and how easy we make it to consume, you know, via application load balancers, etc., this is a way to ensure consistent performance when using multiple instance types. If this update tickles your fancy, I suggest you hit our documentation, as there is a great section on using this for Spot, and I won't be able to do justice in conveying everything here, but here are some considerations for using this effectively. With many things, start small. Start by choosing a few instance types that reflect the actual performance requirements of your application. You know, EC2 has over 100 different instance types slash permutations. So start small, then decide how much each instance type should count towards the desired capacity of your auto-scaling group by specifying weights. The weights apply to current and future instances in the group. Be cautious though about choosing very large ranges for your weights. For example, we don't recommend specifying a weight of one for an instance type when the next larger instance type has a weight of 200. The difference between the smallest and largest weights should not be that extreme. If any of the instance types have too large of a weight difference, this can have a negative effect on ongoing cost performance optimization. And lastly, the size of the auto scaling group is measured in capacity units and not instances. If your weights are based on vCPUs, you must specify the desired minimum and maximum number of cores you want. Now, in doing this, there are a few behaviors that are going to be introduced, but I just want to call out one, and it is the current capacity will either be at the desired capacity or above it. So because auto-scaling wants to provision instances until the desired capacity is totally fulfilled, an overage can happen in this scenario. For example, suppose you specify two instance types, a C5 2x large and a C5 12x large and you assign weights of 2 for the C5 2x large and 12 for the C5 12x large. If there are 5 units remaining to fulfill the desired capacity and EC2 auto-scaling provisions a C5 12x large, the desired capacity is going to be exceeded by 7 units. If you're interested in this, see the documentation or links in the show notes. It's a great feature, especially when combined with Spot, allowing you to achieve cost-effective solutions with no discerning performance changes to your customers. Let's pivot here and talk about something totally new. Not a new feature, but an entirely new service. It's not going to be as common as EC2, but it's going to be more relevant to the masses than, say, GroundStation. AWS Data Exchange is a new service that makes it easy to find, subscribe, and use third-party data in the cloud. Qualified data providers include Reuters, Foursquare, TransUnion, Axiom, and many others. I could really go on. It's not just a handful. It's over 1,000 different data feeds. These products cover a wide range of industries including financial services, healthcare, life sciences, geospatial, consumer, media and, and entertainment, and more. I encourage you to take a look at these as there may be a product offering that meets your needs. Almost all of these are costed, but many offer a free trial. Now we're talking some pretty big data catalogs here. Reuters, as an example, curate over 2.2 million unique news stories each year in multiple languages. Foursquare, whose location data is derived from 220 million unique consumers and includes more than 60 million global commercial venues. And because of this, these can actually be quite costly. Some of these subscriptions can be upwards of 20k per year. Before I get into the how, let's talk through a use case. Perhaps you're working for a property insurer. 
You could subscribe to the data to analyze historical weather patterns to calibrate insurance coverage requirements in different geographies. Or perhaps maybe you're working for a restaurant. You could subscribe to population and location data to identify the optimal regions for expansion. I could go on, lots of use cases, and as I mentioned, 1000 plus data products. Once subscribed to a data product, you can use the AWS Data Exchange API to load the data directly into Amazon S3 and then analyze it with the wide variety of tools that we have in AWS. Once in S3, the paths are pretty much limitless. So how does this work? Each time a provider publishes a new revision of their data, Data Exchange notifies all subscribers via CloudWatch events. And from CloudWatch events, you can push this practically anywhere you desire. If you want to get started on this, there'll be some IAM changes you need to make. You need to add an IAM user with the policy of AWS managed job function for this to work. And if you want to kick the tires, you can use the AWS Data Exchange Heartbeat. It's a free product offered by AWS Data Exchange that you can subscribe to. Use it for testing, familiarize yourself with how to use AWS Data Exchange and its concepts. Okay, so moving on here, guard duty. So GuardDuty has become one of those services I tell all customers to turn on by default. It continuously monitors for malicious or unauthorized behavior, helps protect your AWS resources, including you know, AWS accounts and access keys. It's really cheap as well, you know, typically less than 2% of a customer's monthly spend. It identifies that unusual unauthorized activity, maybe someone's cryptocurrency mining or deployments in a region that's never been used. It's powered by AI and it's constantly evolving. Now, over the last 12 months, new findings continually have been released, but how you consume these findings has remained static from implementation. GuardDuty publishes any of its findings it makes into CloudWatch events. So your pattern typically might be GuardDuty, CloudWatch events, maybe an SNS, step function, or a SIEM, SOC, Lambda, anything from CloudWatch events. Well, now there's more ways here. So rather than having to use CloudWatch events, you can now export findings to an S3 bucket using the GuardDuty management console and API. With this feature, you can export findings from across all regions, and you can export findings from an associated member accounts and all AWS regions to a single S3 bucket. The S3 bucket can be used in the same account in which GuardDuty is enabled, or in a different AWS account. Once findings export is configured in each region, GuardDuty findings are automatically exported from GuardDuty to the configured S3 bucket. In order to set this up, GuardDuty will need some permissions, as when you configure GuardDuty for exporting findings, you select a bucket to store the findings and a KMS key used for data encryption. In addition to existing permissions GuardDuty requires, you must also provide permissions to successfully configure KMS and some various S3 permissions. See our documentation for this because I'm not going to list them all out here. Worth calling out though is that the bucket and the KMS key must be in the same region for this to work. The frequency for S3 can be as low as 15 minutes, but it defaults to six hours. And you can find these settings in the GuardDuty console under settings and the findings export options. So this is another nifty feature here. You're still gonna have CloudWatch events, but now you have S3 giving you a simplified way to aggregate all findings across all accounts into a single bucket for integration with other AWS services, third-party applications, and for long-term retention. Another service has had a lot of little updates has been FSx for Windows, eight if anyone's been counting. But today we're gonna to talk through a few of these. So the first one here is data deduplication. So data deduplication at the block level has been around for some time, especially in Windows Server. You know, when you tick that box to enable compression at the NTFS volume file folder level. Well, FSx for Windows now has such a feature. 
Data deduplication these days is a norm on many block storage devices such as SANs and NASs and large data sets often have redundant data which increases data storage costs. Typical savings average around 50 to 60% for general purpose file shares and up to 70 to 80% for software development data sets. And with the advent in modern CPU performance, performance hits are typically a thing of the past. This is no longer the early 2000s. Data deduplication reduces or eliminates redundant data by storing duplicated portions of a data set only once. And because the data deduplication runs as a background process, it doesn't significantly affect your file system's performance. It's also transparent to users and connected clients. After data deduplication is enabled, it continually and automatically scans and optimizes your file system in the background. Now you may have noticed I chose my words carefully here. As I said, it doesn't significantly affect your file system performance. There's going to be a hit, but it's often undetectable. And if you're concerned, you should absolutely do your due diligence and testing before enabling. To manage deduplication, you need to use the Amazon FSX CLI for remote management on PowerShell. That's a mouthful. And there are various commandlets for enabling and disabling data deduplication. And my favorite command is here, or commandlet, I should say, is measure-fsx-dedupe-file-metadata. What this commandlet does will measure and retrieve the potential storage space that you can reclaim on your file system if you enable deduplication. There are also many commandlets that deal with scheduling, so maybe you could do, you know, leverage that commandlet to avoid performance hits during and do it during low I/O periods. A great feature, and I'd seriously look into it. Feature two of FSX I want to talk about is encryption in transit. It is something you can now force. Just remember, you need a client that supports this. Encryption of data in transit is supported on file shares that are mapped to compute instances that support SMB protocol 3 or newer. So hopefully you know you've got some good Windows hygiene here and you are running Windows versions greater than 2012 or Windows 8. And on the Linux side, that's using Samba 4.2 or newer. FSX automatically encrypts data in transit using SMB encryption as you access your file system without the need to modify your application. So it's transparent and it's using the AES CCM as its encryption algorithm and also provides data integrity with signing using SMB Kerberos session keys. You can enforce this feature, but you can still enable or disable in-transit encryption per file share or to the entire file system. This allows you to have a mix of encrypted and unencrypted file shares on the same file system. You can enable this feature with the commandlet set hyphen FSX SMB server configuration, and you can do a hyphen question mark to see the values. Again, I really stress you test this prior as it may break access to older clients that do not support SMB 3.0 or 4.2 for Samba. Now, if you didn't notice from the past two updates I told you how to modify and tweak FSX, I'm using Windows PowerShell. Well, the next update is to announce just that. We all know the console and the GUI isn't scalable. Prior to reInvent, you know, these were the only options you have. So now you can also do this from the command line using PowerShell. This way of creating shares is useful in cases like migration and synchronization when you're creating a large number of shares. You know, you don't want to be clicking through everything here. And cases like ongoing management workflows when you're creating shares frequently and in an automated way. There are nine commandlets for general management for you to consume, ranging from you know, creating new file shares and removing them, setting properties, you know, ACLs, ACEs, and so on. So take a look at that. The next update here is one I'm quite excited about. And whilst Windows and infrastructure just doesn't excite me like it did 10 years ago, this is a really good update here as it's a good win for customers that saves 
time and money and reduces complexity for those who are running Microsoft SQL Server in a HA mode. There's a few ways to provide HA here for SQL Server. So you've got the high availability for Microsoft SQL Server, and that is typically deployed across multiple database nodes in Windows Server failover clustering, with each node having access to shared file so storage. Continuously available file shares make file storage available in a way that's optimized for Microsoft SQL Server. So starting today, you can create a continuously available file share on Amazon FSx for Windows File Server, enabling you to store an active Microsoft SQL Server data on a fully managed Windows file system in AWS. Additionally, you may you know, architect this in another way, using a file share witness to manage cluster failovers. I've seen people in the past use EC2 with third-party software to provide this functionality. The file share witness helps maintain the quorum of the cluster resources. Witness file shares require only a small amount of storage for quorum information. But you know, you, it's a bit of an overkill here. You're going to have to have multiple EC2 instances plus third-party software, and this can cost thousands per month. So this update, not only does it allow this, but it's providing smaller FSx for Windows volumes, you know, as small as 32 gig in size, you know, down from 300. Amazon FSx is making it even more cost-effective to use FSx as a fully managed file system for file share witnesses, eliminating the need for that added complication of EC2 patching and so on. And a bit of a quirky one to end the show on today. So organizations are changing. You know, culture is changing in IT from what it was 10 years ago. All of my customers, and I'm pretty lucky to work with those that self-empower their teams, may have hundreds of AWS accounts, and they don't want to be held up by a single operations team as a choke point. I want to talk about Route 53 here, and the update is that you can now associate private hosted zones with the same virtual private cloud, even if they have an overlapping namespace. So we need an example here, because that was a bit of a mouthful. So for an example, if one of those hosted zones is a subdomain of the other, such as acme.example.com and example.com, support for overlapping namespaces makes it easy to manage permissions across your organizations. For example, let's say a central team in your organization manage a parent hosted zone, such as example.com, while allowing an independent team to manage their own subdomains of that zone, such as acme.example.com. If you have two or more private hosted zones that have overlapping namespaces, the resolver is going to route traffic based on the most specific match. If there is no hosted zone that ex exactly matches the domain name in the request, the resolver is going to check for a hosted zone that has a name that is the parent of a domain name in the request. So it's going to go one level up that DNS tree. Now, this update is not going to be for everyone, but it absolutely simplifies DNS configuration in those somewhat more complex AWS accounts. Well, that's it for today. Time to pack the suitcase and head on out of here. Listeners, I hope you had a good break and this show has eased you back into the new year. To close out the show, let's summarize today. Today, we covered some of the missed but very important updates that occurred in the last few months of the year. We started the show with Lambda Destinations. It's a new feature of Lambda that provides visibility into Lambda function invocation and routes execution results to AWS services, which simplifies event-driven applications when function are invoked asynchronously. Lambda sends the event to an internal queue, a separate process reads events from the queue and executes your Lambda function. I then pivoted to a raft of EC2 updates. I started with some housekeeping with longer resource IDs. From now until the end of April 2020, you can test your systems with a longer format and opt in when you're ready. But after April 2020, all new resources will be created with longer resource IDs. It applies to only new resources, and I encourage you to test this out before it's forced upon you in April 2020. 
Elastication and RDS now have new EC2 instance types available for you, saving you money and increasing performance. I also touched on how the credit system works on our T instances. I spoke about an entirely new service, AWS Data Exchange, which is a new service that makes it easy to find and subscribe to and use third-party data in the cloud. I jumped into five FSX for Windows updates, deduplication, encryption, PowerShell, smaller volume sizes, and the file share witness for SQL Server. I spoke about GuardDuty. You can now export findings from across regions, and you can export findings from all associated member accounts and all AWS regions into a single S3 bucket. You know, that's going to save a heap of time if you're familiar with GuardDuty. Before closing the show out with a unique but important update on Route 53, it now supports overlapping namespaces, simplifying complex AWS accounts. As I mentioned at the start, we'll be back with another update show in the coming weeks before launching back into normality for 2020. Keep the feedback coming. Let us know what works, what doesn't work at awstechchat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of this show. But until next time, bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.